Welcome to the Illuminating Health Tech Podcast, a health tech podcast brought to you by Menlo Park Recruitment. Illuminating Health Tech is here to quiz health tech leaders to offer professional knowledge, experience and insight on the biggest topics in the industry. It's the podcast to listen to if you work in health tech. Welcome to the Illuminating Health Tech Podcast. Hi, I hope you're well. I'm Andrew Dean, um, Director at Menlo Park. This is the Illuminating Health Tech Podcast, and um, we're regularly approached by GPs interested in pursuing a career within health tech. I'm joined today by Dr. Tom Nicklewright. So thanks very much for joining us, Tom, um, who's been working within the health tech sphere for um, the last five years. Tom's had a very interesting career journey to date, um, so his insights and advice are going to be indispensable um, to those within our network looking to pursue a career in tech, uh, as well as tech companies who are perhaps considering how a clinician could add value to their team. Tom, when you look at uh, your, your CV, um, you didn't follow a traditional route into general practice. You've engaged with, with lots of different groups and organizations uh, during your medical training. And you even developed a mental health social enterprise for disadvantaged children, um, which is obviously impressive while studying at the same time. You quite clearly have an entrepreneurial spirit. Um, so what prompted you to pursue a career in, in medicine? And did you know that you'd be doing all of these things you know, at the same time whilst doing so? I definitely had no idea things were going to turn out the way that they did. I think it's, it's Steve Jobs in his Stanford commencement address. He reflects on the fact that when you look back at your career, you can find it relatively easy to join the dots. But when you're progressing forward, it's almost impossible to see how all of these things add up to the whole. And I mean, my career is still, still developing, but already I can see that all those random little bits that I did on the side are starting to add up to something. So my journey into medicine was the same as many of your listeners will have experienced. I think anyone who's got a bit of a scientific leaning when they're at college and secondary school um, and, you know, does quite well with their grades and their exams kind of gets channeled towards medicine as a potential career option. But as well, I really wanted to help someone. I wanted the job that I feel proud about, that I could go and, you know, tell my parents this is what I've done mm -hmm. and I've helped. So that's kind of how I ended up going into medical school. But while I was there, I can remember this feeling that actually, although I love the science and I love the big picture thinking around medicine, actually my time on the wards wasn't the most fulfilling. Mm -hmm. I really had this sense I wanted to do something a little bit more creative. I wanted, yeah. I wanted to build, I wanted to explore new ways of doing things. And a lot of my conversations with career advisors would be, you know, just get through med school and just get through F1 and just get through F2. And eventually it was somebody who said it was a career advisor pretty far into my uni days who said to me, Tom, I think your problem is you're looking for something entrepreneurial. And I hadn't really, I hadn't really come across the word before. And he said, if you want an entrepreneurial career in medicine, look at public health, psychiatry, or general practice, and that'll give you the most scope to build the kind of thing you want. So that was my route into general practice, really. It was the desire to be autonomous and to really try and shape the way things are done in practice. Yeah, because that was, um, 
you know, going to be a, you know, a, a question as, as, as well, you know, choosing, you know, general practice. It's one of those decisions that you obviously have to, you know, make part way through your training, which way you're going to go. Um, but, but yours was actually steered by, you know, some career advice saying, well, actually, if you if you want to pursue these different routes, you know, general practice is, is going to allow you to, to, you know, to do that, essentially. That's, that's absolutely right. And once I started doing general practice training, you quickly get exposed to GPs that are doing some fantastic things. You know, some of them are, you know, some of them have gone into partnership or full-time salary general practice, which is a hard job in itself. It's a fantastic career. But mm. others also I came across were working in prisons or drug and alcohol services or cruise ships or sports yeah. teams. They're just seem yeah, yeah. so much scope. I thought, actually, I can probably really find not only a niche, but a way of building a bit of a portfolio career where I'm trying lots of different things out. Because even yeah. at that point, I don't think I'd really found the thing that felt perfect for me. I just didn't yeah. want to close any doors. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's that's really interesting because I've not, you know, um, heard that reason for pursuing general practice before. So it'd be interesting to see, you know, if that resonates with, you know, um, anyone, you know, any of our listeners, anyone within our um, you know, demographic, and particularly now, whether you know it, it is advice um, you know GPs are receiving as as they go through through the system these days because of you know the opportunities you know within health tech. Because you know, I think historically it's certainly um, something they haven't had advice on, and I think you know it, it sounds like you probably had uh, you know a good careers advisor um, at the time, which isn't always the case, is it? Definitely not. I was very lucky to have the conversations that I had. And I think now as well for GPs, there are probably even more opportunities open to us than when I was at training. You know, yep. when I was training, telemedicine wasn't really a thing. And and now, you know, GPs can practice anywhere in the world potentially and just consult by video. So yeah. it's just, I mean, general practice really is a world where there is so much that you can do. It, it, so much scope for practice that's beyond the imagination of a lot of the other traditional specialties in medicine. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, one of the things I picked up on as well was, um, you know, I, your advisor you know, said that you're not going to get much, you know, fulfillment from that. But I think, you know, one of the things is, you know, you, you go through that training, like, you know, sometimes you feel that you do, you, know, you owe it to people, you want to make people, you know, proud, or you think, well, I've gone through all that. So actually now I need to go and practice as a GP. And I've got bills to pay, so I need to go and do that, you know, on a on a full time basis. But you know, I think what general practice, you know, perhaps allows you to do is is maybe to um, buy yourself some some time to, you know, perhaps you know do some sessions here, some sessions there, but then actually pursue some of those things that are going to, you know, make you happy or you know fulfilled at work because we don't know what it's going to be like until we do it. And and who you know, and, and still by by the time you've gone through your you know your your medical and your GP training, you still you, you don't know what you want in in life. There are still going to be you know things you need to kind of experience in order to think actually yeah that would be you know really interesting or you know something that I that I want to do going forwards. Um, so I think that's a really good point. Um, so how was how has general practice shaped you as a you know as a, as a medical leader? Would you say what what tools has it given you to do the you know, the job that you do? I think general practice gives you an amazing ability to see the whole and that probably sounds a little bit a little bit cliche but it really it really does um it shapes your approach to risk 
in general practice, you never have all of the answers. And I'm not saying that you do in secondary care, but in secondary care, the availability and access to tests is worlds apart to what you have in general practice. So um, your ability to sit with risks changes as a GP, and that's advantageous in the digital health setting. As well, because general practitioners interact with all areas, all disciplines within healthcare, all types of health service, it means we're really good representatives of healthcare and the NHS as a whole. Mm. So digital health companies are looking on how to get into the NHS. A GP is a really good navigator through that complex web that's NHS healthcare. Absolutely. Um, it, it's that link up service, isn't it? Um, you know, you're the the cold face of um, you know many of the issues that um, these health tech firms are actually trying to you know provide solutions to, um, but then you're connected with that that next you know step as well with you know hospitals you know people you know working within communities you know etc. Um, so again, I think that's you know a particularly interesting um, you know point to make with um, you know our demographic who are looking to. You know, take that first foray into working within a, a health tech company, um, but wondering how the heck they're they're going to get there. So, so what motivated you to to start looking um, at health tech options? Because you know you've worked in and around the industry for for you know for several years now, which I would say is like ahead of the the curve and certainly you know ahead of the the, the trend. Yes, we're getting people asking us now, but we certainly weren't five years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I certainly didn't know I wanted to get into health tech, that's for sure. Uh, I'd had these conversations with the health, you know, the health, the careers advisors, rather, and they'd kind of put me on the track of thinking about entrepreneurship. So I um, essentially I knew I wanted to I wanted to be strategic. I like I like long term planning. That just is the thing that that really excites me, kind of thinking long term, thinking preventative. And there was a bit of that in general practice. But, um, but I thought healthcare leadership might be the way to get exposure to more of that. So that was my first my first deviation, I guess, from the normal yeah. route. I applied for a health leadership fellowship that was offered through Health Education Northwest. Um, I went through the Elizabeth Garrett Anderson program, which is a study stream within the NHS Leadership Academy. And through that, I started developing my leadership skills and my I guess the difficulties of trainee is even when you learn those skills, there can't, there's not always many opportunities to actually utilize them. Yeah. So my, my way to kind of exercise a bit of that, I guess, was through medical politics. Mm-hmm. So I started getting involved with the BMA and got onto their doing work with their GP committee at the local level, then at the national level, and then at the kind of beyond GP training, the GP committee of the BMA. Mm-hmm. And there was a great route to kind of see see healthcare through a wider management and political lens that I wouldn't have otherwise got through training. Yeah. And after doing all of that, the experience was amazing, but I came out knowing that I didn't want to be a medical politician. That path wasn't right for me either. Yeah. So I stepped back from that world and again, started looking for other opportunities where I could be strategic, where I could plan, where I could forward think. And that led me to developing the mental health business you mentioned before. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So just yeah. to, to kind of explain a little bit, a little bit about that, I've been thinking about mental health. My other half is a teacher, so together we were equally frustrated 
at CAMS waiting lists. Predominantly, it was CAMS waiting lists that was really, really winding us up. And we thought there's got to be a way we can support those children who um, have low-lying anxieties or low body, you know, low self-esteem, problems mm -hmm. with low mood, but perhaps aren't at a point where they'd be clinically diagnosed with depression or anxiety. Can we intervene early? We thought the schools were the opportunity to do that. Now, knowing nothing about business, really, but having all this, you know, this leadership skill set, I wasn't really sure how to develop the idea beyond just an idea. Yeah. But that year was when the NHS launched the Clinical Entrepreneur Programme. For those that haven't heard of it, that's a programme for any, any clinician with an idea to improve healthcare, whether it's just as an idea phase or whether you've got a prototype or you've got investors, and it serves as both a supportive network, but also an educational program to teach you everything you need to know about, you know, patenting, intellectual property, um, law, finance, investment, all of those kind of entrepreneurial skills you'll need in your toolkit. So that mm -hmm. was a phenomenal opportunity uh, and gave me the confidence really to launch that mental health business. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, what, what motivates, um, you know, a lot of clinicians that maybe want to make the step is that, you know, they feel, you know, um, GPs in particular, obviously, we're talking about GPs, is, you know, the feeling that you're having, um, uh, you know, an effect on your your list, so your list size and the patients that you see uh -huh. um, at your GP surgery um, versus, you know, something that can, um, you know, affect the, yeah, the wider population and, you know, thousands and, and thousands of, of, of people and that and that's really the you know the kind of step up isn't it and and what you know um, that kind of platform um allows you to uh, to do and, and and obviously you you found um your way into um you know health tech via um you know that particular route but you know i imagine back then it, it certainly wasn't easy to find ways into to health tech and you know how would you say that's changed now? What, what's it like now if you are a GP trying to, you know, pursue opportunities within health tech? How many opportunities are there for people that perhaps lack the experience and, you know, um, and haven't experienced as many different um, environments as you? Yeah, I think I think actually now there are more opportunities than there ever were before. But I think the challenge is that they're just not broadcast. They're just not advertised. People often think that to get exposure to digital health, you need to be appointed a medical advisor for a digital health company. And that's um, that's not always easy to do. You get stuck in that perpetual problem of, you know, the job descriptions all saying looking for someone with five years experience. And you think, well, how, yeah. how does anyone ever get the five year experience if no one's going to accept someone with zero experience? The fact is there are there are lots of other opportunities for GPs or clinicians wanting to get into this. So, for example, most ICS boards will have a digital health group or a clinical safety group, and they're always looking for clinicians to help support them with their work. So I'd reach out to them and if nothing else, ask if you can attend some of their meetings, if not be part of the group. Mm -hmm. Also, most, uh, most professional organisations will have a, um, a digital health group sometimes called a clinical informatics group that's kind of old school language for the same thing an yeah. example being the rcgp has a health informatics group um, and again all you need to do to be part of that group is to reach out and they'll be able to link you up with it 
So kind of having a look to see, I would say, look to see if there are any groups within your current sphere where you can get exposure to digital health. And that's a strong place to start. Yeah. In addition to that, there are a number of different conferences, often which have free NHS tickets, things like um, the NHS Comfed or um, the HET, H-E-T-T Festival, which is later this month. Um, if you're close to where the conference is being hosted, you can attend completely for free and then start building up your digital health network and getting up to speed on some of the new developments. Yeah. Okay. Now that's great. That's really um, you know, good practical advice as well that we can, you know, um, make a note of and, uh, you know, provide um, in, uh, in some form of note section rather than just saying, yeah, go and, you know, call a bunch of health tech companies and see if they'll listen to you, which, which of course you can't. And to be honest, you know, most of them don't actually have phone numbers that someone's going to you know, pick up. So yeah. unless you're doing some of these, you know, proactive things and contacting the specific groups that you've mentioned, um, you know, it, it isn't that accessible. And like you say, the, the roles aren't been, you know, um, advertised. So I think it's very much about, um, you know, people you know, getting involved and, uh, you know, a bit of promotion going on. Um, yeah. You know, from clinicians themselves. And do you I know think what, what I'd add to that, Andrew, is yeah. that um, a lot of I'm meeting an increasing number of clinicians that are joining early stage digital health companies, yeah. and they're saying, "I've joined this company to learn more about digital health, and they don't know what to do with me, and I yeah. don't know what I'm doing there." And there's this yeah. kind of, you know, <laughs> they, you know, the company knows they need a doctor. The doctor knows yeah. they need. Something, but neither really understands the relationship of what they should be doing with each yeah. other. Yeah. So I'd no. say, you know, as a starting point, don't necessarily seek out any any kind of startup yeah. you can work with. If if one's there, great. But otherwise, definitely just start building your foundation with the things that are around you. And that I would probably say one of the most valuable things then that you will bring to any digital health company you join further down the line is you can say. I've been part of these groups. I understand how digital health is commissioned and assessed mm. in the NHS. I know who the key players are in this region, in this network. And that is invaluable for when you do start doing work with some of these companies. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that, you know, I think that point you made about, you know, potentially someone going in, especially to a very early stage startup and not really knowing how it's going to work is a very good point to make as well. So, um, you know, I think if you are a, a clinician that's looking to uh, to make that move, um, it, it's making sure that that's been, you know, well considered and, you know, there is a, you know, strategic plan in terms of, you know, how you're going to add value. Um but the other point that you made a bit earlier on as well was, um, you know, it, it's not just about, you know, going and accepting a medical director, you know, role within um, a health tech company. Um, back in July, you had a really, um, you know, fantastic um, blog about six reasons you'd be crazy not to have a clinician in your product mm -hmm. team. Um, so specifically within product. Um, and... And in that, you describe your experience. You literally you know, gave a bit of a you know, blow by blow account about your first day and uh, how you felt, um, you know, initially out of your depth. What, why? Why was that? I mean, again, it's probably because you're an early adopter, but was it because you know they they didn't know how it was was going to work? Why, why did you feel like that? Do you think? I think um, I think it's culture. It's yeah. It's a very different culture. You know, I think in, I think firstly, working in a really creative space, a really innovative space, it's unlike anything you will get the opportunity to experience in the NHS, which if you're a creative person, 
is wonderful. Mm-hmm. So just, you know, complete, uh, com- you know, whiteboards, post-its, colour pens, no ideas too wacky, let's pop them all down. That, you know, just being that open-minded was fantastic without any of the, any of the closed-minded, you know, oh, we've done that or that won't work thinking you sometimes get in, in kind of established NHS organisations. Mm-hmm. Um, you've also got the whole approach to iteration and innovation. So in health tech, there's a real focus on churning out small little things in order to test whether your assumptions are right or wrong. Mm-hmm. And then if, if your assumptions are right and you prove something, then you build on it and you test it again and you build on it and it test it again. I think in the NHS, sometimes we are guilty of a little all or nothing thinking. <laughs> You know, yeah. either we've got to plan the whole thing out and then deploy it in a kind of bulldozer approach yeah. or, um, or or we make a lot of assumptions without testing any of them. And we immediately yeah. go with the first idea that comes to us or comes to our manager sometimes. So definitely the, the focus on data and on just trialing lots of little prototypes and building gradually was mm-hmm. a big culture shift for me. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I was going to ask what are, you know, some of the uh, the, you know, the biggest differences that clinicians face transitioning um, from NHS into a health tech company. But it's, you know, when you, when you mention something like that, I think it's a really, you know, good point. And presumably when you've got a clinician like you, you know, working within health tech and seeing some of the things that, you know, are positives and, and work really well, you know, is there is there an opportunity to take that back to an institution like the the NHS and you know change it or, or is it is it just too big you know could, can 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 that ever happen? Well, is it definitely? I think this is why the entrepreneur program was set up, the clinical entrepreneur yeah. program. It wasn't just to kind of siphon off good doctors and nurses to go and leave in work in industry. The idea was that those clinicians can also function bilaterally and bring those things back into the NHS. So I think it definitely works in digital health. Mm -hmm. For me personally, probably one of the biggest take homes I've taken away. And this is, um, you know, this is a, I suppose, a product mantra is to always make sure you have the right problem. So always start with the problem. Don't run off and instantly try and come up with solutions always take time to fully understand the problem. And just that little tidbit, I've managed to reap some benefit from applying it to projects in my practice. So by all means, I think trying to bring some of that culture into healthcare, into general practice would be really beneficial. Yeah, no, I like that one. I'll, I'll nick that. Start with the the right problem. Um, mm-hmm. So starting with the, the end in mind, you know, essentially, um, and then lots of testing. Um, so, you know, based on that and based on your experience and based on the fact that um, clinicians shouldn't just be pigeonholed into certain um, kind of roles within health tech companies, what do you think are, are the, you know, the best, you know, so if, if we're talking now directly to owners of, of startup companies, you know, mm-hmm. um, seed stage, series A, wh- why should they be employing, um, you know, clinician to, to work alongside some of the, um, you know, the things that, that they're doing early on in the company's development? Sure. So this is my, my sales pitch on behalf of the profession. To yes, exactly. the industry. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think there are, I, I think there are four major areas to where where doctors, clinicians can really help 
digital health beyond just the product and like you mentioned you know i have done a separate blog just looking at the product side of things yeah um i would say the first one let's start with products so, so the first one is that clinicians bring an, an inherent understanding of how the system works we bring an empathy for how patients think and feel you know we we spend our careers advocating on behalf of patients and understanding especially in general practice not just how they're um how they experience their illness, but how their illness ends up shaping all elements of their life and the decisions they make. So I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. Also, our ability to assess risk is a, a big value cell, I guess, for, for industry. There are roles that some of your audience might be aware of, clinical safety officer. That's a trained role um, that can only be held by a registered clinician. And that role is necessary for any digital health company to meet the requirements of NHS digital standards on, um, on safety and health tech. So I think that's, that's definitely one role. Put a, put a clinician or a doctor as your clinical safety officer and get them telling you what patients experience, what, you know, how they navigate the health system. Obviously get patient input too, that's, best, that's kind of gold standard. Mm -hmm. But those usually clinicians help you understand healthcare. I think the second one is clinicians bring a great understanding of what good clinical governance looks like and how things should work operationally in healthcare. So if you're running a digital health company that's got a strong service delivery element to it, perhaps you're running um, some testing facilities within your organization for remote blood tests or remote swabs, Perhaps you're delivering a video consultation or service or an online pharmacy. You're going to have to design care pathways. And as soon as you start delivering care, being provider of care, you'll fall under the auspices of CQC. And, you know, you'll need to provide training and do audits and quality improvement and all of that stuff, which to a digital health company is overwhelming. Yeah. So putting a clinician in place, especially a GP who's been through CQC inspection, mm. Yes. Uh, it's really valuable for making sure that from a governance and quality perspective, your company's up to scratch. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, even with the planning that goes into, um, you know, a, a product or a particular service that's been, um, you know, that, that someone is bringing to fruition, um, we still see examples of where it gets to that part. And, you know, you need to be compliant, you know, um, legally and, uh, you know, from a healthcare perspective. Um, and people aren't all like, ah, suddenly, yeah, we, we don't know what we need to do. We, we need some advice here. Um, mm -hmm. So I think having that, that earlier on and, it, you know, also shaping the the products and and the journey is is a is a beneficial thing um so not just last minute right okay how do how do we get this you know signed off but actually involving you know the clinician earlier on um in terms of how it's going to you know shape the uh, you know the latter product or or service that someone's providing um Absolutely. so yeah, some really good points there a total blocker i think the last two roles i would just add very quickly to the end of that andrew is i would say um, if you're a gp or a clinician with research experience that's highly valuable at the moment mm -hmm. to digital health companies you know there is um i think now that the market's getting more savvy around digital health there is a constant requirement to see good randomized controlled trials pilot studies and a lot of digital health companies don't know where to start with that or at least done the relationships with hospital trusts or practices where they can actually pilot their tech. Mm -hmm. 
And then the fourth area, the fourth and final area is the network. So health tech companies are, health tech companies are always going to try and be uh, leveraging any relationships they can with senior decision makers across the NHS. And as a GP or other doctor that's been working in this space for years and years, you will have a network that carries huge amounts of value, even if it's just a network that allows you to facilitate conversations with the Royal College or Mm -hmm. with your chief information officer or perhaps your PCN clinical director. Those are really valuable relationships and companies will, uh, will benefit a lot from those. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's a yeah another you know great practical you know point that people have. You know, they they are that's something that they don't have to kind of uh, actually you know uh, train for or gain knowledge. It's something that they will they will have. You know, obviously working with the uh, NHS. So I think that's a really good point because it's relevant to most of the people that are are going to be um, you know listening um, to this. So that's that's really good. Um, what do you think the you know the future holds then for you know clinicians within health tech? Um, we've mentioned a variety of the the different roles that they perhaps can get involved in. But where do you you know where where do you see it you know it going particularly for for GPs? I think. I think we'll see more opportunities crop up. In the five years I've been working in digital health, I've seen many, many more roles develop, many more committees set up, um, interest groups set up. So I think you're only going to see more and more opportunities. I think as well, over the next few years, what we'll see is some formalisation of the education, both for frontline GPs that perhaps just want to be aware of what's out there in digital health, right the way through to clinicians that really want to develop this almost like a like a subspecialty. Yeah. The Faculty of Clinical Informatics, the FCI, is trying to develop a, or they have developed a framework, a competency framework for digital health clinicians. Um, and they're trying to, you know, develop some traction and, and force behind that. So you mm. can already see that that's the direction of travel this is going in. But certainly mm. I think we'll find that whether you're really passionate about digital health which is of a passing interest, we'll yep. all start needing to know how it works to utilize it in our day-to-day practice. Yeah, no, that's that's great. That's um, I appreciate that uh, that insight. And um, before um, yeah, we finish, I just had like a couple of specific questions, I, I suppose, about you know you and and your current role, Tom, because we've discussed some early parts of your career, but now uh, you work for for Orca. Um, so I mean, most people will will know what that is. Um, you know, uh, certainly within our audience, but it's, it's a tech that reviews and certifies digital health technologies, um, essentially. And that's, you know, not just here in the UK, that's that's across the world. Um, and um, and you are a, a clinical director there. So so what yeah. does your role now involve? What's, you know, what, what are you doing on a, on a day-to-day basis? So the we've got a clinical team of about 15 or 16 clinicians at the moment at Orca representing a breadth of professions and specialties. And the bulk of their work is focused around clinically assessing new health apps that are entering the market. So most of my role is making sure they're inducted, trained, supervised, managed, and able to carry out that role. But as well, Orca's kind of got this this product, this assessment service that, they, that they're rolling out, but as well, they're a very mission-driven company and they're really driven by the desire to increase the use of safe and effective health tech by clinicians and patients. So a lot of my role is trying to manage several strategic projects that can, that can facilitate that. 
So we've launched the Digital Health Academy, which is completely free to NHS professionals, by the way. So any of your audience there, if you go to the NHS e-learning hub and type in ORCA, you can access those modules there. That's all about educating the workforce in digital health so they're confident recommending it to patients. We're also building out a network, a kind of informal professional network of clinicians that are interested in digital health and can help join us on that mission. Um, but over the next few months, you'll be seeing other projects get developed, all with the aim of trying to drive up adoption of digital health. So it's as comfortable to a GP recommending an app for calorie counting, weight management, smoking cessation, as it is prescribing amoxicillin for a chest infection. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, it's, I mean, Orca was ahead of the curve. This, you know, Orca was not set up to, you know, address uh, many of the issues that we've seen because of the pandemic, where you have, you know, thousands of, you know, mental health apps, for example, that just, you know, aren't being monitored, you know, for their FUC or anything like that, that, you know, someone might access and, um, you know, obviously you know, not get the results that they're, they're looking for. So certainly ahead of the curve in, in that sense. And I think you know, that, that's maybe something that's influenced you know, uptake within general practice in terms of you know, clinicians' confidence to prescribe um, digital products um, to, uh, to their patients. Um, because one thing that we've seen recently, um, we're in the midst on, on the GP side of things of doing a, you know, working conditions and uh, um, you know, salary survey. Um, but one of the findings that we are seeing from that is actually, you know, whilst there were you know, differences we recorded you know, during the, the pandemic in terms of working practices and people adopting new technologies, as we're coming out of that now, we seem to have reverted to um, yeah, a lot of what we were doing you know, previously. So for, for GPs, that's, you know, face-to-face -face appointments. It's, um, you know, video, video consultations, you know, dropping again. It's the use of the telephone. Um, it's people not using, you know, apps and, and, and that type of thing as well. So it's definitely, you know, it's, it's not like the pandemic changed primary care, is it? Or, or the work of clinicians. There's still a lot that needs to be done to, you know, adopt these, these new technologies and increase confidence. Yeah, there, there certainly is. I think... You know, as a GP, I've seen my own behaviour revert to pre-pandemic. And I think it's because the workload pressures are so immense. We yeah. will just revert to the to the easiest thing, which is the status quo at the moment. Mm -hmm. You know, I think video consultations were a little disappointing in that they, you know, patients didn't necessarily like them. Sometimes it's a bit clunky, in, you know, getting a video feed that's good enough yeah. quality and they can take more time than we've got. I think the, but we mustn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm -hmm. I think we just need to really reiterate the message that there, there are, there is health tech out there that can save time, that mm -hmm. can reduce the dependency patients sometimes have on the health service. Um, and that's kind of the message Walker really wants to, to get out. There is good health tech. It is overwhelming mm -hmm. because of tens of thousands out there. How are yep. you supposed to know? But yep. don't shut the door on the whole lot. You know, mm -hmm. let us help you to identify the best apps that can help you and help your patients. Yeah. Then I think if we can achieve that, we'll start seeing the shifts that the pandemic didn't quite manage to maintain. Yeah, absolutely. And, and let's not forget, you know, clinicians were under, you know, tremendous, you know, not just um, you know, pressure from patients, but political pressure to revert to type and yeah. 
<laughs> see see face-to-face um appointments so it's, it's perhaps mm-hmm. not surprising you know that, that we've seen that return to um yeah. uh you know what we were doing beforehand but but like you say um you know there is there are still tools that, that and i think again within you know general practice you know primary care for, for, for gps and um, clinicians working in that environment that there's huge potential for that that link up again so for wearables for you know at home testing kits whether that's for you know um it could be you, know, you see dna you know cholesterol blood um you know vitamin you know all of these things that will hopefully allow patients to monitor a condition um at home um maybe wearing a wearable device that then you know, links up to their GP surgery that their, their GP can keep, you know, a, an eye on. Um, so hopefully we see, you know, those kind of, you know, trends and, and just, you know, the, the, the tech and, and the apps, you know, working in harmony with, with general practice. So we are being more preventative um, rather than reactive. Um, and, you know, we, we are freeing up time for clinicians to focus on, on the patients that, that, that need it. Um, but yeah, seems like there's a long way to, to go at the moment, Tom. But there's there's definitely kind of um, you know good good signs, hopefully, isn't there? There is, there is, and you know, I think let's not be too negative. I think following the pandemic, I am still delighted when I have a phone call from a patient who is unwell, and they tell me over telephone their blood pressure from the blood pressure machine they bought during the pandemic, their O2 saturations from the SATS monitor they were given by the district nurse during the pandemic, the thermometer, you know, the temperature from the thermometer they bought, when they're able to reel off their observations like that and it makes the clinical decision so much easier, you think actually there has been a shift here. Patients are more accountable. They're more used to taking control over elements of their health. Mm -hmm. And we mustn't forget that. In fact, I think we need to really hold on to that when we're thinking about embracing the tech of the future. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, that's a, that's a perfect example because, um, you know, my father-in-law had a, you know, a heart attack during the, you know, the, the pandemic and he was able to, you know, remotely um, send his data to the specialists that, that he was dealing with. And then, you know, through rehab, he's been able to do, you know, video consultations and, uh, you know, online-led, you know, exercise, you know, classes, you know, for strengthening heart and things like that. So there are really good examples that, that, that do exist and that, that are working. But I think, yeah, the, the one you gave is, is perfect. Just being able to, you know, monitor that, have an effective conversation. That person then isn't coming in to see you in, in mm-hmm. practice. You've got that. You can make the notes. You, know, yeah. you, you move on. The, the clinician then sees the more you know, the, the person that needs seeing, um, which is which is great. So, and are there any kind of particular you know, products or you know areas of health tech that, that you know are exciting you um, at present, or, or, or that of you know, particular interest? Um, yeah, I think there are there are a number of different health technologies that are that are really exciting me at the moment. I think. Um, I think the wearable market will be a really interesting one to watch. I think up until now, up until now, the main developers of wearables have really focused on um, this data game. Let's just collect more and more data. And that's what the customers want. And whichever device collects the most data is the one that wins the race. And that strategy has kind of been winning up until now. When you look at the feature set of each of the wearables, you know, there are brand new features, but no real clarity on how the patient's supposed to use them. Yeah. An example being that there was this huge rush to give everyone um, O2 saturations monitoring on their, on yeah. their wearable devices. Well, actually, then they really struggled to find a use case for why that was useful. And now they're having to go back retrospectively and think, oh, you know, crumbs, what can we use that for? 
So they're starting to learn that data without insights isn't useful to users at all. So I think as we start seeing a move from just data collection to insights and behavioral change, I think that could be really powerful for healthcare. So that's number one. And the second one that I'm really interested in is the remote monitoring and remote diagnostics. Um, I'm not sure if you saw in the news or your audience saw in the news recently in the BBC, but the Dyson Award was um, was given to a device uh, with an accompanying app that allows women to screen themselves at home for breast cancer and to examine their breasts much better. Yep. That kind of tech could be game changing. Yeah, absolutely. There are already apps out there that can, you know, reportedly test for heart arrhythmias. Um, there are there are apps out there like Nivaware that can help with spirometry at home. Um, so we're just seeing increasingly more of those tests being put into the hands of patients. And with the right guidance, I think that's a really, really good thing for preventative healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. No, we we did have that uh, on our on our newsfeed, and, and and literally someone did describe it as a as a game changer, which it which it certainly you know is. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the type of tech that's going to have you know um, really useful um, you know uh, preventative you know hopefully or at least early stage detection of uh, you know diseases like um, like breast cancer, of course. Um, yeah, certainly, you know, wearables is definitely something that, that interests me as well. And I say, you know, certain well-known, um, you know, big, big brands have, you know, had certain you know, features, like you say, monitoring, you know, oxygen levels within blood and people are like, yeah, so what? Um, but yeah, um, it, yeah, it's interesting to see, that, you know, some of the changes, you know, coming in, like actually, you know, monitoring uh, sleep. Um, because for, for me, it's it's in, in terms of, you know, people's overall you know, health or it's physical, uh, you know, mental, et cetera. Um, that, that 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 is also um, a game yeah. changer, and um, I've seen you know that that come into you know the uh, the wearables um, you know space in a in a big way, um, you know uh, both in terms of you know obviously you know watches, but also um, some interesting stuff around um, uh, you know dream analysis uh, and stuff that just sounds like insanely futuristic. So um, yeah, good to yeah good to understand uh, your thoughts and some really good um, examples there. Um, so, you know, moving on from that, what, what's what's next for you know for, for you? Are there any other kind of projects or, or goals that you're you know focusing on? You know, present, you know, short term, medium term. I'm sure there are lots, of course. Short and medium term, um, my focus is going to be on the Digital Health Academy Orca. So, trying to upskill the workforce so they feel confident recommending the right digital tools to their patients, and about building this professional network that just doesn't exist for clinicians that have an interest in digital health and promoting its use of the front line. Mm-hmm. I think long term, what I would love to do, and I know the founders of Orca share this vision, is I would love us one day to do work in uh, in the developing world around health tech as well, because mm-hmm. I, think, um, I think actually the UK is extremely forward thinking in terms of digital health. We're finding that the more international work we do, you know, we really are pioneers in this space. Um, but being able to take those learnings to other countries, especially countries, you know, with with lower incomes, where mm-hmm. the journey from um, from home to clinic is that much further, where yeah. access is that much more restricted, I think digital health could help, you know, not just improve but save many more lives. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. The, um, you know, r- rural health companies. There's there's some you know frightening stats about um, you know the. Uh, yeah, not just the access, but the impact that has on things like expected uh, you know, living ages, um, et cetera. 
Um, and with, with there still being a worldwide shortage of clinicians, to be honest, it seems like it's the only way um, that we're going to be able to address those, those kind of um, issues. Um, so uh, yeah, again, a, you know, really good point. Um, and yeah, thanks, thanks for today. Cause I think, you know, the, the really good thing about what I've seen from, um, you know, your content and the stuff you do, it's not just about, you know, providing, uh, you know, sound bites. Um, it's, you know, some good um, practical advice in there. There's actually steps that people can you know, pick out um, and, and adapt to, to what they're doing. So um, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, but I'm sure that our listeners will massively, you know, value um, the advice that you've, you've given us today um, and uh, hopefully be able to, uh, to use that themselves. Um, and uh, yeah, start you know getting into uh, to, to health tech. So thank, you thank you very much for having me on, Andrew. It's oh, been a pleasure to be a help. Oh, no, you're very welcome, and hopefully speak to you again soon. Speak See soon. You See you Bye. later. Bye. You've been listening to the Illuminating Health Tech Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, review, and share so others can find the podcast too. We really appreciate your support. We understand how important it is to make the right hire at the right time. So if you are a health tech organization looking to make your next key appointment, please visit menloparkrecruitment.com or email andrew at menloparkrecruitment.com. For daily health tech news, please follow Menlo Park Recruitment on LinkedIn. Thank you for listening and we hope you'll join us next time for another episode of the Illuminating Health Tech Podcast.